there a better way to start the morning than with such a lovely reassurance? All will be well. Indeed, it is so. Morning. Good morning, and welcome to this last theme talk of our summer school week. We begin by lighting our chalice, the worldwide symbol of Unitarianism. These words by Bruce Southworth. We gather as a community of memory and a community of hope to celebrate life and its infinite possibilities of love. We light this candle as a symbol of the light within every human heart. May our individual sparks meet and merge, bringing both both warmth and light to the world. It takes a village to make a summer school. You all know that. But I want to start this morning by simply offering a variety of thanks and inviting you to offer a variety of thanks as well. The first um, set of thanks goes to the summer school committee. And I would ask all the members of the committee to stand up, please, just for a moment. These are the people who have worked all year round to bring us this week and who spend this week as well doing the hard work of making things move through seamlessly, taking care of problems, making sure things get printed out, um, taking good care of the theme speakers and the workshop leaders and all. So I would ask you to give them your thanks this morning. This year of the committee, she has served for three years, um, given lots of love and care and tenderness to this process, and so a special thanks to Mel as she steps off the committee. Um, I want to also, yeah, go ahead and sit down. Um, I also want to give a thanks to Ned Prudeau, who is behind the scenes a lot, um, doing a whole range of things that make our life um, good and easy here, Um, providing music, helping out getting us into the chapel and out of the chapel and locking the door and being the fire warden, doing the auction and... So so I'd like us to also just give thanks to Ned for the support he offers. We have workshop leaders who guide us through this week with care and affection and tenderness and challenge and, um, and joy and, um, and, again, a lot of work. So I'd like the workshop leaders to stand up, please. And let's say thanks. to stay standing for a minute because I'm going to do something special in a few moments. So, And you all will want to be part of this. So um, I'd also like to ask the theme speakers to stand up in addition. And if you're already standing and have been a theme speaker, up, up with your hand like Jeff. <laughs> Just note. Um, the theme speakers, and I think the workshop leaders, I wrote this down because I was going to get mushy and I didn't want to lose it. Um, <laughs> The theme speakers, um, uh, we've been talking this week a couple of times uh, about the quality of listening and openness that exists here at summer school. 
Um, each one of us has noted that we've been struck by the sense of attention that is paid when we speak. Lots of us speak in a lot of places, and the quality of attention here is simply different, and it is, it is such a tremendous gift. It feels like a great honor, and it is actually a little terrifying as well. But the comfort of your willingness to hear us and the loving acceptance that we have felt from you is a great gift. And so we, and I'm including the workshop leaders in this because I trust that you all have had that experience as well, we would like to thank you for coming together, for being here, for walking this walk with us this week, and for the kindness and gentleness and love of your attention that you have given as a gift to us. So shall we, shall we say thank you? All right. All right, so it's a story time. Now, I had one story picked out to do this morning, and it slotted in pretty well with my theme for both Sunday and today. But, you know, it's the last day of summer. And I want to be sure we have enough energy, so I have a more energetic story that I love that I want to tell to you this morning. And you all need to be part of this. You all have to help me with this. Some of you may have heard this story already. But you need to help me with this. And there's a particular part in this story where I will say the saying of the Shema, which is a, a prayer in a Jewish service, a prayer of the dead. And, um, and I'll need some of you to be people who stand. So would you stand up if you're willing to be a person who stands? I only need some. doesn't need to be everybody. <laughs> no, your, your choice, your choice. Okay, so you are the people who stand. When I say, saying of the Shema, you'll want to stand up. Okay, you have more work to do, but, but that's the first bit. Now, the people who sit, you also have work to do. You're not alone in this. They're not, not uh, just left on your own. The thing is, is that what you need to do is fight with each other when I say that. Right, so the people who stand, what you're saying is, shame on those who sit. What are you doing sitting down? Whatever comes to mind. I did this once, and, uh, and someone, someone in the front row just went, yeah, just sit down. <laughs> Use your creative energy this morning. And uh, as might, you might guess, the people who sit are to yell at the people who are standing that they, or did I already do that? Yeah, okay. So anyhow, you yell at each other to do what you're doing. Um, so back and forth. So let's give it a give it a go. I'll say the saying of the Shema. Thank <laughs> you. 
the service. <laughs> and this is exactly what happened. And the rabbi was stunned. He didn't know what to do. But sooner or later, people quieted down and the saying of the prayer finished and everyone was seated finally and looking at him expectantly to go on with the service. Well, the next week rolled round and the service went along just fine until they came to the saying of the Shema. <laughs> summer camp where I learned how to whistle. Um, and again, the rabbi was stunned and didn't know what to do, but uh, again, as it happened the week before, soon everyone sat down and looked at him expectantly and he carried on with the service. Now he went and talked to people to find out what was going on because this was incredibly confusing to him. And he went to some of them and they said, oh rabbi, you must know our tradition has always been to stand when we say the yeah, that prayer. <laughs> and the rabbi said, oh, oh, that's very interesting. And he went to others and they said, Rabbi, don't believe a word anyone tells you. We have always sat during that prayer. <laughs> rabbi didn't know what to do. Week on week this happened. Uh, it gets started through the service, come to that certain point, and there would be this great fight. Not being able to sort it out, not being able to find who was right and who was wrong, he finally took some representatives and went to see the old rabbi who was living conveniently at the edge of the village. <laughs> In they went. And the new rabbi began explaining what went on. And he said, you know, we get into the service and we, everything's fine and we come to the saying of the Shema and...
Let's sing our song for the morning. It's number 124, 124. One more step. We will take one more step. Sheila, thank you for the music. Thank you for the gift. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about you guys having not having enough energy this morning, apparently. It's been a rich, rich week for us all, I hope. Yesterday, Cassandra and I had a, a bit of a word, and we were commenting about how much food for thought we'd had this week, and I worried that there might be a bit of intellectual or spiritual indigestion going on. Um, but here we are. Here we are at the last of our theme talks, and there's a bit more to do before our last workshops and the process of finishing our time here and eventually returning home. Now, we started our journey through this week with our first theme talk um, that had Jillian's reminder of some of the history of our activism. The struggles of the Patium Church to build their building, their persistence, and their commitment can be an inspiration to us today. The work of the members of the Rochdale Pioneers, many of whom were members of the congregation there, who built the cooperative movement, a movement that shares in many of the values that we hold dear. That's another inspiration for us. She reminded us of the words that we often speak about this beloved community of ours, freedom, reason, tolerance, community. She brought us to think about the phrase that helps to bring us back to earth from those high ideals, deeds, not creeds. She challenged us to, to think about what our churches say about themselves and to consider whether we live up to those words. Jeff brought us, in addition to that unbelievably great story, which I think will go down in sun, summer school legend, 
Jeff brought us a deep reflection upon what it might mean if we walked our talk. First, suggesting that at least one of our significant tasks is to be journeying towards wholeness. For him, this is the journey toward God. He went on to help us think about our national movement and what it might mean if we were to all come together in our meetings and gatherings in ways that are congruent with our deepest spiritual values. He suggested a kind of snake-eating-its-tail heresy by declaring that we are right, but cautioned us that our liberalism can also make us infinitely pliable which can be a a problem. James Luther Adams commented at one point, it's one of my favorite statements of his, that um, liberalism doesn't mean a mind that is simply open at both ends. (laughs) Sarah, with ultimate gentleness, reminded us of our imperfections and how we get trapped so often in blaming ourselves or relentlessly blaming others and offered us some ways to find our way out and onward. I have to say, to leave a talk in which one has been reminded of failings and faults and limitations and to be somehow uplifted and refreshed um, and challenged is kind of mind-boggling. It's not what I expect, but that was, for me, the experience of that day. We ended our time together that morning by honoring the light light in all forms and the love in all beings. And in case that bit was lost on you, when you were trying to sort out the learning and the moving and figuring out where you were supposed to be and what you were supposed to do, in case you didn't catch this, the light is in you and from you. The love is in you and from you. Yes, even you. Jim brought us back into our bodies. We need strength to do this, to live with integrity. And we need our whole bodies and all our feelings engaged. Drawing on the wisdom that is available in our whole selves, we are able to walk in deeper integrity. Jim invited us to be connected with our sacred bodies. And I know many of us felt the power of attention and the blessing of the love and the care we can offer to ourselves. Using the techniques and ideas that he shared, we can find a more embodied spirituality which in turn means we can walk our talk more deeply and more effectively. The discussions through this week have been equally rich, I think. Those of you who have been in the theme talk discussions will know this. Some of the topics covered include how we join in action together and the power of that joining together, a consideration of how we can begin to change our national organization, how to help it operate more from spiritual principles, Uh, We had some discussions about what human perfection and imperfection might mean and about how much risk we need to take and the blessings of fallibility, including mine. These notes clearly will be leaving out many, many important things. As well as that, we had the opportunity to delve into the body practices that Jim introduced us to as well. And now we are beginning to get ready to leave and have before us the ongoing question of how to take home what we have known here, what we have learned here. Now, I trust that in your workshops you have or will be asked how to consider how to take home the learning you've had this week. You'll get opportunities, I trust, to make commitments to what you'll do to walk with more integrity and to help to lend your hands to heal the world in whatever way you can find to do that. But there's essential struggle in this, too. 
what is enough and what isn't enough. I suggested in our service last Sunday, you remember last Sunday? It's a bit of a distant memory for me. In our service last Sunday, I said, um, in our recognition of the enormity of the trouble in the world um, and our limited resources to meet that need, that this is the, the quandary, what is enough? When, when have we done enough? And I want to um, burrow into this question a bit more, and I'll do that by using another set of principles for liberal religion, this one offered by the Unitarian Universalist minister and scholar James Luther Adams. Now, this little bag had this thing for a long time, trying to count up the... I'm not good with maths, especially not on my feet. Um, This little bag was given to me when I finished my ministerial training back in 1988. During the commencement celebration, a fellow student called us all up to the front of the room and gave us these little bags that have five smooth stones in them. And they're meant to stand for the five smooth stones of religious liberalism that were articulated by James Luther Adams, this Unitarian minister and scholar. There's a lot more background to the five smooth stones, but just take it as these are the five smooth stones um, of religious liberalism. Don't worry too much about writing these down. I have um, Jane kindly made a handout that I'll give to you at the end of the the day. So if you miss what the the smooth stones are, no worries. You'll have a, a copy of it to take home. Now, out of these five, I want to focus on two from the middle. But to have context, I'll mention the others to start. The first smooth stone, sweet little smooth stone, is revelation is not sealed. Adam says that this free faith of ours affirms the continuously creative nature of truth, knowing that can come from any source. God, the holy truth, however you phrase that, is revealed in the amazing moon, in the tenacious weeds that sprout in unlikely places, in the growing body of scientific understanding of our world. We see it there no less than God is revealed in the tenderness of a child's kiss or the touch of a friend's hand when our lives feel shattered. Revelation is not sealed. The second of the stones is all relations between people ought to ideally rest upon mutual free consent and not coercion. This calls us to be in relationship with each other, in just relationship with each other, to recognize that all people deserve to be treated as human beings. It is the principle from which arises the liberal commitment to tolerance and acceptance and has within it the trust that all people have the capacity to bring new truth and new light to the world. All relations between persons ought to ideally rest upon mutual free consent and not coercion. The third, the third stone, religious liberalism. Religious liberalism affirms the moral obligation to direct one's efforts towards the establishment of a just and loving community. And this is the first one we'll consider this morning. Now, some of you may know that I came from an activist family. Early in my life, I was going on marches and picketing for open housing. This is open housing meaning um, that uh, 
housing was open to people of all colors um, in the U.S. Housing was often restricted to whites only or blacks only. Um, picketing for open housing during the civil rights movement in the U.S. We stopped the Vietnam War because we marched and we talked, walked out of school and we went to rallies. At least that's how it felt to me. We went out and told the world what we thought, and the world changed. Both civil rights and the Vietnam War felt that way to me as a 6- to 13-year-old. Now, strangely enough, this reminds me of my dog, Susie, a sweet but somewhat vague cocker spaniel um, who, had, who was a fierce defender of our home. She had that seemingly innate dislike of people in uniforms, common to most dogs, um, and she would become this cloud of buff-colored fur and noise whenever she saw a meter reader or a letter carrier coming near our door. In one of the houses that we lived in with her, she had a perch halfway up the stairs with a window right there. <laughs> looked out on the street, and anyone who was suspicious, which included more or less anyone who had the audacity to come by our house, she let them know that they would not, um, that they ought not try to mess with us. You see, her fierce defense worked every time. She barked, they went away. Not that one thing necessarily had anything to do with the other, but it worked for her. And I feel certain that she believed down to the smallest fiber of her being that she was responsible for keeping us safe from the interlopers who sought to do us harm. The world was sort of like that for me, too. We protested. The world changed. Or at least the things that we were concerned about changed. It's perhaps a bit stretching um, to say that I've been barking all my life. Um, and have been puzzled why it didn't work to do what it had always done. But that's not so far from the truth. Even if our activism in those early years didn't do exactly what I thought it did, I still learned just what this principle suggests, that we have a moral obligation to make a community of love and justice. Adams won't let us go on this. He is forceful in his articulation. For him, this isn't an ethereal, airy-fairy, happy-thinking sort of principle. It is a practical, hands-on principle that won't allow us to simply sigh out our affirmations, not if we look at the world with open eyes. The third principle calls us into the world to walk our talk, to live our religion, not only in mindfulness and kindness, but by taking action to bring about material change in the world. As discomforting as this can be, for who among us can claim to have lived up to such a call? It is, I think, one of the essential elements of our religious life together. A well-lived spiritual life of whatever stripe includes taking on that which challenges us most. Now, our DIY approach to religion can sometimes be construed as the easy one, one that allows us to believe whatever we like, what pleases and soothes us. This principle, I think, helps to bring us back to earth, calls us to be active in the making of the world that we want, calls us to be engaged in building the kingdom here, reminds us that we are not exempt from making real the ideals of justice and love. Yet the work seems so huge so overwhelming that some mornings I just want to stay in bed, nothing to be done that would make any real difference.
perhaps you know that feeling too. This is the seesaw we're on. The world and its troubles so vast and complicated that it can't be solved with a bit of barking no matter how well-intentioned and full-hearted. On the other hand, there's no way it could ever get fixed without it. So here's the thing. Here's the spiritual truth that comes from weighing the world and what we can do. The point isn't to get it all fixed. That's an impossibility. The point isn't to find those magical powers that enable us to enact some transformation of the world. That, too, is an impossibility. The point isn't to give in to the inertia that grows from being overwhelmed. That is spiritual death. The point is to get up and keep trying. The point is to never give up, even knowing that it won't be accomplished by you in your lifetime. The point is to do what you can. Keep barking. That's what I say. Even knowing it all, keep barking. You'll be discouraged. Yep. Disappointed? Absolutely. You'll forget about it for a week, a month, ten years. No question that's the case. But sometime, at some moment, you'll see that obligation again, and you'll take up whatever piece you can, of work you can, and you'll do it. And here's the good news of it all. You can't fail. You can't fail until you're dead. And even then, if you have given this task, this moral obligation, your attention, you've done it. God has not called me to be successful He has called me to be faithful, said Mother Teresa of Calcutta, or at least reportedly so. It is no less true for you and for me. We will not get to that place, to that world that we dream. We will not make it, no matter how good our intentions and our best actions. But we have the moral obligation, we who follow this liberal path in religion, to be about the work of that world, to make justice in the land, to increase the realm of love, to make the world as we would want it to be by living the world we want, by embodying the best we know. I want you to take a moment or two to think about the commitment that you will be leaving here with this week. How will you be Uh, um, embodying the best of what you know? What's the small step that you intend to take as you leave this place tomorrow morning to start embodying the best of what you know in the world? And if you would... Just take a few minutes, we're not going to go very long, take a few minutes to turn to someone nearby or someone's nearby and share, as you can, what that commitment is.
anybody be interested in saying in a word or two, take a few of these, what their commitment is? <coughs> Anyone? Word two, three, please. We're a small congregation and not particularly active. And uh, I, in a choir, we went and did a concert. And between the rehearsal and the concert, we went to the loo. There was just one loo. We were all queuing up. And inside the door, there was a photograph of a loo in Africa. And they were twinned with a loo in Africa. Which <laughs> was into the theme talk properly the fourth stone this is perhaps my favorite phrasing of all of these um, it really I, this has always delighted me um, completely um, it is it is we deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation we deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation. My fourth year at university, I took a class in the psychology of learning. And as a part of that class, I had to learn the definition of learning. We recited it in class every day. It was, learning is a relatively permanent change to behavior due to experience. This is 30 years ago-ish, 30 years ago. Still completely, totally in my head. The man who was teaching the course obviously knew what he was doing, learning. Per relatively permanent change in behavior due to experience. Some years later, I had a long and very frustrating argument with a friend about it who kept repeating back to me that it was possible, he believed, to learn something with it out, without it having any impact on your life. What then, I asked him, does it mean to have learned something? It's not an idle question. I was truly wondering how you could claim that someone had learned something without it having any impact on their lives, how they were in the world. What meaning would the learning have if it didn't manifest itself in some way? And that's like this source statement that we're considering, too. What does it mean to believe something if it doesn't have some impact on your life? What does it mean to believe something if it doesn't shape your days? The statement is provocative. We deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the, social, the necessity of social incarnation. In the early years of my ministry, when I offered groups in which we explored Unitarianism, and especially when we asked people to speak of their reasons to coming, uh, for coming to a Unitarian church, 
It was usual that several people in every group would talk about their frustration with people in churches who behaved hypocritically. To sing and speak of love on a Sunday, but not to manifest it in your daily work life or at home, offended lots of people, and rightly so. In the U.S., where church-going is a much more ingrained behavior, people who found the hypocrisy too much sought a church where they found religious community that seemed to have more integrity. Many of them came through the doors of Unitarian Universalist churches there. I think there's some of that that operates today. It seems to me that in the popular imagination, religious life is seen as a pious ascent to unbelievable propositions that don't relate to life as it is lived. Spirituality, too, as a broad concept, doesn't get a much better understanding in popular culture, where it is far too often portrayed as relating solely to personal practices. Spirituality is concerned in the popular imagination with the state of one's own soul, with seeking personal peace and a life of evenness, a means, if you will, for avoiding the tempests and troubles of life. I don't think I need to tell you all that religion or spirituality is at its best a very different matter. Karen Armstrong offers us this brilliant reminder. She says, religion is not about accepting 20 impossible propositions before breakfast, but about doing the things that change you. It is a moral aesthetic an ethical alchemy. If you behave in a certain way, you will be transformed. The myths and laws of religion are not true because they conform to some metaphysical, scientific, or historical reality, but because they are life-enhancing. They tell you how human nature functions, but you will not discover their truth unless you apply these myths and doctrines to your own life and put them into practice. Religion and spirituality is about the life you live, not about the ideas in your head. If it doesn't show in your life, then you haven't learned it. If it doesn't show in your life, then it isn't your religion. This is only part, though, of what James Luther Adams is trying to communicate with us when he suggests that virtue must have a social incarnation. One of the features of the liberal, religious, the liberal approach to religion is a recognition that our values cannot simply extend to our friends and the trusted people within our own community. But it is a part of the religious journey to seek our values and to seek to make them manifest in history. It is part of our religious journey to seek to make our values manifest in history. Adam's words. The faith of a church or of a nation is an adequate faith only when it inspires and enables people to give of their time and energy to shape the various institutions, social, economic, and political, of the common life. The faith of a church or of a nation is an adequate faith only when it inspires and enables people to give of their time and energy to shape the various institutions, social, economic, and political, of the common life. There are two messages in here that I hear. 
Firstly, it is a reaffirmation of that notion that whatever we believe must be lived. Secondly, though, he is pointing us toward the importance not only of our own personal activities and actions, but the essential work of creating and sustaining those social structures that will enable what we hold dear to move into the future. If we do not find ways to ensure the endurance of our most deeply held beliefs, then they will die with us. It's a really important thing to keep in mind as we move forward. If we do not find the ways to ensure the endurance of our most deeply held beliefs, then they will die with us. You see, the point of our religious life, the religious life of a liberal as Adams understands it, isn't only to seek a life of integrity. That is, he asks us not only to live our values, but to live for our values. He suggests that we need to do something more than make a beautiful life for ourselves. The arena of our spiritual life is not only our daily interactions, but is also the wider play of movements and meaning in the world. We deny the immaculate conception of virtue, we affirm the necessity of social incarnation. Now, I know that for many of us, getting on with the daily round of our lives takes about all we have. I know that many of us, maybe all of us, for us the commitment of living out our faith in the small moments and movements of our lives is about all we can get done in a good week. I know that when we are asked to change the world, and indeed to change it not only for our lifetime, but for the future beyond where our vision reaches, I know in those moments, I for one simply want to lie down, take a nap. The idea, seriously, the idea is exhausting and beyond what I could even imagine doing in my small, complicated life. I want to suggest, though, that this need not, should not be taken as yet another condemnation that we haven't done enough or been enough in our lives. Rather, this needs to be one of those ideas, those beliefs that we are asked to live into. Any one of us can only do what we can do. Even so, to be asked to raise our eyes to new possibilities and other opportunities, to be asked again and again to discern what is calling to us from the wide world is as much a part of the meaning of religion as is personal practice. So let's take it as a nudge, as a reminder that we do not live for ourselves alone, and that if we find what we believe what inspires us in our lives to be worthy, then it is some part of what we are called to do and to be in the world and to look to see how we might make a difference. I also personally take some comfort from that definition from so long ago. Learning is a relatively, relatively permanent change in behavior due to experience. Religion, too, has that relative quality to it. For we affirm here that we are always on our way, always in the process of creation, always seeking for the way we need to go. And while we see a goal, we know at our best moments 
We know at our best moments there is no there where we'll arrive someday, but only this day and this moment and what we can bring into our lives and into the world, small step by small step. Now, there should be one stone left in my bag. But the last time I took it out, I found that there was a stone missing. And like many of the kinds of lists that we've made or known, often one thing off that list goes missing. I mean, who really can name all seven dwarves? <laughs> who can get the seven deadly sins on the first try? I trust there is someone here who can, but most of us, it's a little difficult. So one principle goes missing, and it is too often easily forgotten. So we'll include it here anyhow, even without its stone. Stone five. Liberalism holds that the resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. Liberalism holds that the resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. The work of saving the world, the work of keeping at it, of being faithful, of making a difference, can be discouraging. The total perspective vortex can stop you in your tracks and leave you feeling like none of it will ever matter. But there are resources that you can draw on. There are the inspiring forebearers in faith, Patium and Rochdale. And I invite you to call out now those forebearers in faith, maybe personal friends of yours who are inspiring to you, um, movements in the past, congregations, places, other movements. What inspires you from the past? What are your resources? Martin. Martin. Elizabeth Tarnall. Yes. Alfred Hall. Yeah. Judith Walker Riggs. Yes, indeed. And Letitia Babel. Well done. Who else? Anyone else? John Stone Burgess. Fred Lip. Fred Lip. Wonderful. Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Well done. Good. Good. So there are those people. There are those people who we can draw strength from, those movements in the past that we can draw strength with. They are resources available to us. There is our blessed national organization. And for all its troubles and problems um, that any one of us could solve, given the chance, right? We've done it. How many times have we solved all the problems of the national movement if they would just listen to us? Right, Sheila? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no matter its troubles and its problems, it can carry what we love, our values, this precious community into the future. Remember the strength of your imperfections. Even those flaws and difficulties can fuel you, move you into the work, into a life you could have only imagined. Remember the power of the wounded healer that lives within each of us. And don't forget the wisdom of your body, your feelings, and don't ever, ever forget, don't ever forget the treasure of your good heart 
and the love that you have within you. Yes, even you have within you. And look at your neighbors here. Look at your neighbors. Take her hand. Take his hand. Just one. Just one to start. Oh, you guys already went ahead. All right, fine. Fine. Look at these neighbors. Go ahead. You have resources within you, around you, more than you could imagine. And flowing through it all, this room and beyond, flowing through it all, there are golden threads of the divine, of the holy, of God, that connect us each to all, to everything that is, that was, and that will be. How could we not make a difference? How could we not be filled with hope, with ultimate optimism? And this is the final message to leave you with this day. These resources that are available to you for the achievement of meaningful change justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. So let us get ready for what comes next to us this day, these last moments together as this community of hope and of faith. Let us be ready to change the world one small step by one small step at a time. One more step we will take one more step till there is peace on earth for everyone we'll take one more step Join me in prayer. into a few moments of prayer as we close our time together today. Spirit of love and breath of life, we pause in these moments to remember. We remember what we hold to be true. Though in our gatherings we may name differing truths, we may embody differing loves, still we come together to remember that no matter the details, we are joined in our shared intention to live well and to live deeply. In the quiet, as we name the holy the most high, that which we love and which inspires us in our living. May we each rededicate ourselves. Remember that the holy lives within our days. Remember that our love shows plainly in our actions. May we know too that when we fail, 
when we forget, when days conspire to thwart our best intentions, may we know that each day is a rededication, each day is an opportunity, each day is a chance to begin again in love and in hope. Let us just pause in stillness, breathing together. And all will be well. And all will be well. All manner of things will be well. So may it be with us this day and in all the days to come. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention this day. May you go well into the rest of it and go well tomorrow if I don't get a chance to say. Farewell to you. Thank you.